Welcome, y'all, to the Direct Examination Podcast. I'm Dane Phillips. And I'm Joseph Bias. Amber isn't here with us today. Um, she's feeling under the weather, so it's up to me and Dane to try and hold down the fort, hold down the accent, um, to, you know, bring that to you, the listener, um, on this week's episode of the Direct Examination Podcast. We have standards that must be met. <laughs> That's and right. so Joseph did his best Amber impression and Y'all can send us an email about how well how well he did. <laughs> how much you miss Amber? Yeah, <laughs> based <laughs> off of our thing, we um have, don't shut off the don't shut off the podcast. That's already. right. Just because you don't hear Amber, um, we have met our redhead quota for today. Though um, Amber isn't here, we do have our intern, um, volunteer intern Dennison Larue, the editor in chief of this um, law review. Yes, sir. All right. Well, welcome. Thank you. All right. Good to good to have you here. Um, Dana, we also have a guest today. Well, before we get to that, uh-huh. got a slow clap for our co-host. He was named Young Lawyer of the Year for the South Carolina, or by the South Carolina Bar. Yeah. I'm in the presence of greatness. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, for anybody who has seen my picture or seen me in person, <laughs> you see all the gray hairs. There's really nothing young uh, anymore, but I, I certainly appreciate the award and the recognition to get to share it with Tommy Preston, who's amazing, who's amazing and probably going to be a president. I mean, I'd vote for him. Um, (laughs) So uh, we'll have to have him on the podcast, too. Absolutely. uh, But yeah, thank you to everybody who uh, was part of that decision making. And um, thank you to my friend Brett and Laura for saying nice things about me in the uh, article. And now let's talk to somebody way more important. (laughs) Well, it's well deserved. Thank you. Our guest today is a living legend. He told me not to say that, but I had to. He needs no introduction, probably because his bio was three pages long when, I was, trying, out. Yeah. Yeah, when I was trying to summarize. But here we are with Mr. Jack Swirling. He has tried some of the most notorious cases in South Carolina history, and he has helped change and create the criminal law in this state. Anybody that could uh, deny his impact on South Carolina would certainly be insane because he has been at the forefront. I mean, he is the creator of the essentially the battered woman syndrome case law in South Carolina. He is a perennial top 10 super lawyer in South Carolina, was just named uh, again for 2019. Uh, a couple more small <laughs> accolades. Jack is one of only five lawyers in South Carolina that's in the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers. One of only three lawyers in South Carolina that's in the American Board of Criminal Lawyers, and I'm one of only five South Carolina lawyers in the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. He has lectured in over 300 presentations with seminars, and he did bridge the gap for, God knows, 30-something years. And uh, it's unfortunate the bridge the gap no longer exists, because for those of us who have been there, his presentation with Dick was... Uh, just probably amazing. the highlight of it. It was by far the highlight of It's the, literally the only thing I remember in <laughs> it right now. I'm, I'm not joking. Out of three days, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. the only that's thing we remember. both can remember. Because, you know, obviously their war stories during that mm-hmm. uh, presentation was amazing. Again, I, I could go on for days. We're just thrilled to have you on the show, Jack. It's good to be here, but you said you had standards. I'm <laughs> wondering how I got here. <laughs> Jack, I, I will say, as we, every week we try and plan the guest and... Um, you know, we have some guests that we're, I'd say, more excited about than others. The Dane's enthusiasm of having you here is unlike any other episode, any other guest we've ever had. So 
the listener can't see this, but Dane is beaming. He's floating out of his chair right now just to be in presence of criminal law uh, greatness. Well, that makes me feel good. <laughs> and, of course, I I read his things or his posts on the uh, website or the... Scat the Lister. not the website, but uh, he knows the law pretty well. I mean, I, I've forgotten a lot of law. <laughs> More than I'll ever know, <laughs> You're I'm sure. Uh, well, so... One of the first things that kind of came to mind when I was having to kind of drop our little outline for tonight, started thinking, you know, where's where's the place of starting? I think, like with anything, how did it all begin? You know, kind of what's the origin story for Jack Swirling and becoming a criminal defense lawyer? Well, I mean, that, I, that's easy enough to say, but I would like to correct one thing. Not correct, but supplement. Uh, we, I did work very hard in the beginning in the 80s on a battered woman syndrome. But one of my Clemson friends, Dale Cobb from Charleston, uh, was also doing it at the same time. So I think the two of us... It's a joint effort. Yeah, it was right. joint. and we. Uh, but he did a lot of them as well, and I did a lot of them in the 80s and 90s. So, so I just with that uh, Humble caveat, in your recognition. Yeah, with that caveat. <laughs> um, so how did it all begin? Well, I'm from New Jersey, so I think uh, doing criminal laws in my DNA... Uh, <laughs> We, but uh, ending up in South Carolina. Right, not. ended up in South Carolina <laughs> uh, by way of going to Clemson. Um, but it, I, I knew a lot of people uh, as I was growing up, a lot of people who you would consider underdogs. Uh, that uh, I, always ident- I was always able to identify with underdogs, people who really uh, did not have uh, the weight or power behind them. And so I think that's transitioned into my practicing of, criminal law because, let's face it, uh, most of the cards are in the hands of the prosecution. Uh, and so I do enjoy getting in there and defending what I sometimes consider in many cases, you know, the underdog who's charged with a crime against the power and overwhelming power of uh, the fed, federal or state government. Well, they do have so, all the power and the money. So you feel that that's the cornerstone of a criminal defense attorney is that David and Goliath underdog kind of gut feeling of why you want to reach out for the cause? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think you do have to believe in the system. You have to believe that, you know, your client or a person who's accused of a crime has an absolute uh, right to have a zealous advocate working for him or her. Um, So I think that's important, and I think that the jury system is important. Uh, We are, I think, lawyers who do criminal work are really the guardians of our Constitution and guardians of our Bill of Rights. Uh, and, you know, if, the, if there were no criminal lawyers to do that, then who would be doing it? Uh, unfortunately, we also fall into criticism or get criticism from our own members sometimes. But, you know, I think it's much better than it was when I first started. Uh, I think people now, there's so many people doing criminal law that people are uh, used to it and don't have a shock anymore when someone comes forward with a, with a criminal lawyer. But back in the back in the day, uh, the dinosaur days, uh, there were very few lawyers who only did criminal, and that's where I, that's how I started. I started uh, in a general practice with Senator Isidore Lurie, who was my mentor and just a wonderful man. Uh, and I started with him in 1973, and I did a little bit of everything. Uh, but I kept drifting toward the criminal. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed reading the law. I actually did pretty well in criminal law in law school. Uh, so I guess that was a, uh, forerunner to it. Uh, 
but but that really became the passion that I had. And, you know, trying a civil case versus trying a murder case, I felt that the trying a, a murder case or a serious criminal case gave me much more uh, drive and, and more of a high uh, than doing civil work. Now, you know, sometimes I regret not <laughs> doing more civil work as, I'm getting, as I get into my 70s. Uh, you know, I, I probably would enjoy uh, trying some civil cases now, uh, but it's been so long since I've tried a civil case that I'm just going to stick with the criminal. I mean, to be fair, you've done pretty well so far. <laughs> well, I can't complain. I'm not, I'm not going to complain. Like Dick said, we make a living, uh, Harpulian. Uh, he's but, made a, a little bit. Yeah, of he's made a living. And he does. Dick was smart back when, uh, sometime after we started practicing together, Dick wanted to go ahead and do some civil work and he did and he had some big verdicts in those days and and he has now just developed that into a you know he's a serious lawyer great lawyer uh, he's my uh, go-to uh, and I, I think I'm his go-to uh, and but he's doing very well in, in criminal and in civil practice. So you mentioned the uh, late Senator Laurie and yeah. um, you mentioned uh, Dick Harpootley and I believe at one point you were Law partners with Joe McCullough as well. The three of us together, yeah. actually. Yeah. And so we got to ask this because he was on our show. You have a good Dick story. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I, Dick and I went to Clemson together. Okay, but, uh, so I actually no, may not want to hear those. Yeah. No, some of those stories. <laughs> there's no statute of limitations in South <laughs> Carolina right. for criminal offenses, so we need to pass by that. But we met uh, Dick. I think it was two years behind me at Clemson, uh, and he wrote. He got very active in the Tiger newspaper. Uh, he and uh, Tim Rogers and Dennis Bolt, some other lawyers who practice here. And uh, my crowd was the, they used to write about my crowd. Uh, <laughs> editorials and you know, at cartoons. Uh, you know, we were the animals in the zoo. Uh, and so, but we, we became very friendly. And at Clemson in those days, uh, if you didn't go home, you were stuck on campus. Uh, and so there was a crowd that was formed, uh, particularly in those days, that were there most every weekend. It was, you know, it was parties and everything else you would expect in a college atmosphere. But Dick's group uh, and my group, even though they were two kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum, all got along very well. Okay. And uh, Dennis Bolt is still a close friend, uh, Tim Rogers, and of course Dick. Uh, he was dating somebody at Clemson. I was dating somebody at Clemson. He married his uh, Clemson sweetheart, uh, and I married my Clemson sweetheart. And I've been married 49 years now. Uh, Dick got he met. Uh, he got divorced uh, some years ago, maybe 12, 13 years ago, and uh, married a wonderful lady, uh, named Jamie. Uh, and uh, so we our paths have crossed uh, constantly over the last 50 years. It's hard to believe. <laughs> well, talking about crossing paths with Dick, let's go probably to the kind of the biggest crossing path that ultimately led to the partnership, Pee Wee Gaskins. So how did you get retained? One of the questions I've always wanted to ask, how did you get retained on that case? Well, I always wonder about it. I didn't get retained. I, well, I, I got, yeah. No, I got appointed. <laughs> right. Uh, and I remember you didn't I, raise your hand <laughs> for that one. <laughs> I remember getting a call one day. Judge Moore, who eventually went on the Supreme Court, Jim Moore from Greenwood, uh, called me up one day and asked me to come over to his chambers in Columbia. He was administrative judge here. 
And I walked in and he said, I'm going to appoint you to the Pee Wee Gaskins case. And of course, you know, Pee Wee was notorious. Everybody <laughs> knew who Pee Wee was. And, and I said, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> uh, but it was, it was really became a turning point in my career. Uh, because back in those days, there were two daily newspapers in Columbia. One was the state. One was the record. You had the three uh, TV stations. And we were literally on, uh, we were in the newspaper twice a day. Uh, the, after, the record was the afternoon paper. The state, obviously, was the morning paper. And on the news constantly, and so for eight weeks. Uh, and it really became, a, a, I would say there was that was the turning point in the career. I had done a lot of criminal before that, but this was a big, major case. And so uh, I did it. And, uh, you know, I, Pee Wee even said in his book, uh, Pee Wee wrote a book, uh, he said, I did the best job I could. <laughs> under the circumstances. What a testimony. Yeah, that was, uh, I like that. At least he didn't criticize <laughs> right. me. Yeah. Right. Could have been worse. Yeah. But we had, uh, Dick and I, as I said, you know, Clemson days, uh, we had that. We met again in law school. Um, I got out of Clemson in 68. He got out, I think, in 71. Maybe I'm maybe mistaken about that. But then I started law school in 1970. I was out two years. And when I got back, started law school, Dick was there, uh, or a year later, uh, and we came friendly again, and, you know, he, uh, he started, uh, J- John Ford was a solicitor at that time, and Jim Andrews ran against John Ford and unseated him after many years, mm-hmm. and this was, I think, 74, and Dick went with Jim Andrews right, right out of law school, uh, after he, uh, created havoc at the Osceola newspaper, uh, <laughs> And, uh, and so we became very friendly again. We tried cases against each other. Uh, and of course that was the Pee Wee case. And we spent a lot of time together on the Pee Wee case. We'd go over to the elite Epicurean every afternoon after court and had some shrimp cocktails and, you know, maybe a drink or maybe coffee or whatever it was. But we, we were very close even before that, but we came extremely close during the Pee Wee case. Uh, and of course Dick says he won. Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I said a, a chimpanzee could have won that case. Uh, no offense, Dick. Uh, but Dick is a great trial lawyer, and he did a great job in that case. And I did his, you know, I did everything I could do. But Pee Wee had, was already in prison for killing 12 people. And he had been sentenced to death several times. Uh, Furman versus Georgia came around, uh, and they vacated the death penalty. So... He was serving a life, he was serving a number of life sentences. The amazing part of that whole case, which uh, really gets, doesn't get as much coverage, is that Pee Wee, who was the largest mass murderer in the history of the state of South Carolina, was named building manager in cell block, uh, I think it was cell block four, where death row was. He, uh, he was given, he's a very conniving and manipulative individual, <laughs> but he was the, the building man. And so he carried screwdrivers, he carried uh, pliers, he carried hammers. Uh, he They also gave him a canteen uh, concession so he would sell sandwiches and coffee. And he pretty much, the only guy in that cell block that had free reign. So he could go wherever he wanted to. And that's how he was able to make and that's the bomb. And that's how he was able to make the bomb, and that's how he was able to set up, uh, well, allegedly. 
Well, well let you make yeah, it. Come on, Dane. He's convicted. Yeah, it's alleged. <laughs> well, but I, you know, to, to his lawyer, it was allegedly. Uh, yeah, no, I, no, I feel your pain on a daily basis. So. <laughs> but I, I did get uh, to represent him, and it was a fascinating experience. I mean, you know, he had such a reputation uh, that when I went down there the first time, I had no idea what I was going to run into. Uh, and you know, I'm six foot five. I was, you know, probably in my three hundreds uh, in those days. And, uh, you know, here's this little guy uh, who was on a starvation diet, and he was probably down to like 92 pounds or something like that. And so, you know, I'm sitting there talking to the alleged mass murderer, uh, serial killer in South Carolina, and uh, I'd I have to say it was a fascinating experience. It was fascinating getting to study him, study his mind, listen to the things he told me, listen to the things he thought. Pee-wee was convicted of 12, uh, like I said, 12 murders. But the amazing thing about Pee-wee was if you did something wrong in the prison, like brought drugs in or used drugs, he was going to report you. So, <laughs> Every is, man's got to have that a code. Is, that is the truth. That was his code. You know, don't do those kind of things. So people always, uh, I always thought that was very interesting okay. yeah, that he had that kind of, uh, uh, those parameters. And he was very forceful about it. So we we had the trial. Uh, worked very hard on it. Uh, we Dick's probably talked about it too, but um, we had over I think four hundred jurors who came in for jury selection, and jury selection took maybe four weeks. Uh, and we we got amazing answers on board here. Uh, you know, first of all, everybody knew who people was. Right. Uh, the question was whether or not they could be fair and impartial, and if they convicted him, would they be be able to consider a life sentence because in those days that was what you, you just had on the Witherspoon you just had a, they had to consider a life sentence right. and uh, of course that's been uh, developed a lot further than that today it's not the same not exactly the same standard. but we went through jurors one after the other and, you know people said they couldn't be fair and impartial people said they could be fair and impartial about guilt but you know if they convicted him they would hang him shoot him burn him, you know, there's a lot of people just felt they could be fair and impartial about guilt, but not about punishment. <laughs> yeah. So we went through hundreds of jurors, and it was a fascinating experience. Because as you guys know, lawyer, we don't do our own voir dire in most cases in South Carolina, so right. brand new. Uh, and we had uh, Gaston Ferry, I don't know if you know him, but he and I were appointed to a train South murder case back in the like 80s, 1980. And we had, nobody had done death penalty cases here because it's been so long. And we had Millard Farmer actually come up uh, from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, and he educated us and trained us on Vaudeer and how to try a death penalty case. Well, that was one of our questions as far as how the practice of criminal defense has kind of changed from the time you started. And obviously media coverage is uh, <laughs> maybe the biggest one, but from the time you started to... Now, I mean, for somebody who's uh, seasoned and, and has done this for a little bit, what do you think as far as the evolution, the evolution, right, of the practice of criminal defense? Well, it's gone in several different directions. Uh, for example, death penalty litigation. No one really at that time had, had experience uh, death penalty litigation, number one. Number two, uh, there were only probably 10 or 11 or 12 lawyers in Columbia, Richland County, who did anything. 
uh, even appointed cases on PCRs, what used to happen in those days is the lawyers from the big civil firm, they would get appointed and then they would hire a criminal lawyer to go in and do the PCR <laughs> right. uh, because they just didn't want to do it. Uh, but but the, the pie uh, of potential defendants was a lot larger in those days to the lawyers. And there were some senior lawyers around, Luther Lee, uh, Dallas Ball, uh, Henry Kirkland, you know, really some really good lawyers. Uh, I mean, Henry Kirkland was a great lawyer. He did a lot of death penalty litigation. But these guys were in the, the toward the end of their career. Uh, and one of the reasons I even went into criminal is because, first of all, I enjoyed trying those cases. I enjoyed criminal law. But also, I saw a niche uh, that I could go after and be a, basically do only criminal law. And that's what I started doing. And so at that time, going into the late 80s, uh, late 70s and early 80s, uh, I was probably the only person in Columbia who was only doing criminal law. Um, because, and these guys started retiring as, right. as time went on. So back then you had you know, 10, 12 lawyers in the whole county doing criminal work. Well, now you have a, at a roll call or roster meeting, you have a couple hundred. So that has changed dramatically. And the pie that's available for, to be retained has gotten a lot smaller because the public defender's office takes on a lot more cases. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more lawyers. So uh, the competition has gotten much uh, greater than it was back in the 70s. A lot, of young, lo- lot of young lawyers running around out there trying to get these criminal cases. Yeah, yeah like, they, like you, Dave, right? Yeah, yeah okay. they, they do. And, I, you know, we welcome the good ones like you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, there are... It's not it's not the kind of trial work that you can do just because you want to try cases. I mean, you really have to have a passion to do criminal work. And, uh, so the good ones, though, you know, we welcome. Uh, you know, and, and there are, I'm not, I'm not saying there's really a bad one. I'm just thinking there's some people maybe in it for the wrong reason. Right. Uh, and to, just to make a living. Uh, but you, you, that's not the way you practice criminal law. Uh, you do it to, because you have a passion. Well, and speaking of young lawyers, what, what's some of the advice that you would give a young criminal defense attorney, you know, the common pitfalls that you see them fall into? What's some of the advice that you would see now? If you could go back and talk to the 20-year-old Jack Swarling, or 25-year-old Jack Swarling. Well, some of, I did, some of it I did, my, I did myself because I wanted to practice criminal law. And I think some lawyers today make a mistake about not going to the courthouse and sitting and watching. There are some really fine lawyers who do not only criminal work, but civil work as well. And, I mean, the first time I ever tried a case, uh, Senator Lurie was supposed to come over and try the case with me. Uh, and it was an armed robbery case. Never forget it. First time I ever tried a case, and he didn't show up. <laughs> because he was in the Senate that day. So I had to go. Fortunately, I had a judge who was very understanding that I was a baby lawyer. Uh, and fortunately, I won the case, so I didn't have to deal with it the rest of my life and my conscience. Uh, but those are the kind of, I, I had never seen a case. I've never seen a trial except on TV. So I do think that young lawyers need to, we don't do it enough anymore requiring uh, young lawyers to go and watch trials. I know it's very time consuming, and they used to have to do that to get their yeah, the 403. I think they have them watch videos. Yeah, yeah, but there's nothing like sitting in a live trial and and watching technique, developing your own technique. You know what you like, what you don't like, uh, 
and I think young lawyers need to do that more often. Uh, and they can learn from the older lawyer. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, and I still, when I have an opportunity, I'll still sit in a courtroom and just, I want to see what the young lawyers are doing because right. they have, they're very creative, they're very knowledgeable, uh, and they have today a lot more skills dealing with advocacy than we had in the 1970s because we had no programs. I mean, there were, there were no programs. Yeah, there was the mock trial and yeah, trial. We, we didn't have, I mean, there was very few opportunities to do anything like that. So I, mean, I, I, I learned from the young lawyers, and I hope they learn from me. Well, I know Dane has, because like <laughs> yeah, I said, he's, he reveres our guest today. I'm t- yeah. So yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to have my mentor be John Delgado, and be, being in trial work with him, and then getting to sit and watch. Uh, you, I mean, that was you echoed what Delgado told me from the beginning. He said it was sad that so many young lawyers have never even been to the courthouse. So he pressed upon me very hard, and obviously the trials that I got to work on with him before becoming a lawyer. But I came and watched you several different times, and there's nothing like being able to watch it unfold, like you said, live, and see kind of the uh, pageantry of it. I mean, Chad McGowan last week just said about kind of the magic of a trial and seeing how it unfolds. So hopefully all the law students out there, you know, Get over to the courthouse. Watch lawyers do their jobs. You see good lawyers, lawyers that need more work, or see things that you need to not do in in front of a judge. I mean, it's the it's the ultimate human drama. I mean, yep. it, you know, there is no more drama, uh, no greater drama than watching a, a trial and, and lawyers fight hard about that case. Uh, like Dick and I, we fought like cats and dogs during the Pee Wee Gaspin case. But every day we were able to go out and have a cup of coffee together. Uh, and we eventually went into practice together within a few weeks of the uh, verdict in the Gaston case. So uh, it, it's very important to do that. And you, it, I, I think a judge's law clerk has an excellent opportunity to do that because they travel a little bit around the I was state ready to right, say that. and they see lawyers from different regions, different styles. Uh, and so it, it's a very, very good, uh, and I, gr- I think it's a great opportunity for somebody to be a judge's law clerk for a year. Uh, but for example, Delgado, you know, Delgado or I, we're in the same kind of uh, age group, generation, and John's an excellent lawyer. I mean, I've been in trials with him. We've represented co-defendants, and, you know, and I I, I learn from everybody. I, I, I absorb uh, whatever I'm watching, and I, and I try to either I modify it to, to my style uh, or... Uh, Maybe just adopt a little bit of the style of the lawyer that I'm trying to case with. But it's, you never stop learning. Uh, and I, you never stop making mistakes. Right. Uh, you know, you just have to learn from your mistakes. And I still make mistakes, but I, but I learn from them and I try not to repeat. Well, that's the big thing. One of the things you said about adopting it to your style, it's amazing how when you watch, say, Dick in the courtroom, watch you, watch Doga. Everybody has their own unique style, so I, I would imagine that's probably part of it too. Don't be somebody that you're not. Don't try to emulate somebody that that's not your personality, because all three of you try cases differently and have your own certain personalities in, in the courtroom. That's an excellent point. Don't yeah. Don't try to be someone you're not. Uh, <laughs> don't try and emulate, uh, you know, a lawyer who's got a, you know, maybe a, a powerful voice or, uh, you know, uses the voice, uh, uses its size. You know, you, sometimes it just doesn't work. Right. Uh, you know, you just do your own thing and, and 
try your own cases, but there's nothing wrong with picking up uh, certain characteristics that you like that you can adopt to your own style. Uh, and I, I did it. I did it for years, and I still do. Uh, but I am going to be who I am. Uh, and, you know, you know, sometimes I get a little bombastic, uh, you know, sometimes I, I passionate. quiet, passionate, you know, whatever, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've had arguments in the courtroom, but not a whole lot of, you know, I, I, I enjoy dealing with prosecutors as long as they enjoy dealing with me. Uh, and we get along for the most part, almost everybody I've had practice with me has been a prosecutor. Well, can be done. You mentioned the law clerk thing. I, I was a law clerk for a year for Judge Lee, and one of the uh, best parts about that was not just picking up the good from everybody, but also seeing some <laughs> bad lawyering, and then just thinking, you know what? If he could do that, I could do that. Like I, I could, I could pull that off. And so it was good for our confidence. So we were kind of nearing the end. We had this segment called War Stories. Um, we know by virtue of you doing Bridge the Gap for a while. Um, Dennison was telling us about how you actually spoke to his 1L class. We know you have a bunch of war stories. We can limit you to one or two. What are some interesting ones that uh, guests would appreciate? Well, I'll, I'll tell you two of my favorites uh, that I've told over the years, and there's nothing embellished about these. That <laughs> they've really happened. Uh, and maybe, maybe throw in a third. Uh, uh, but the, the one that stands out most is uh, back in the late 80s. Uh, there were there were there was no security. There was no uh, X-ray machines or uh, whatever they call. It. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Right. The going into the courthouse, uh, and you didn't get searched. Uh, there, there was no uh, no no real security except the people who were in the courtroom. A lot of them were bailiffs who had been retired police officers, slept in the courtroom a lot. Uh, but you know, once in a while, you had a couple of deputies, so there was not a lot of security. And I was trying to murder case over in Lexington County uh, with Knox McMahon, who eventually uh, became a judge, judge circuit judge. Uh, and uh, we were trying the case in front of Judge Baggett. Uh, my client was from West Virginia, or her husband was from West Virginia, and uh, he was abusing her. It was a battered woman case. Uh, and as the trial went on, the family of the victim got very hostile toward me. And periodically, when we would take a break, we'd go out in the hall, and I'd sit on a bench out there in the old courthouse, and they would come up and take pictures of me, uh, which was a little unnerving, uh, you know, that uh, the family of the victim was taking pictures of you. And I told Judge Baggett about it, and he had the bailiffs, uh, the deputies seize the camera and take the film out. Those were the days when you had film. <laughs> film and the camera, yeah, right. it wasn't digital. Um, and so I started getting a little nervous, and, and I, get, I was getting bad looks from these people, and, you know. So I, I had a CWP, concealed weapon permit. So the last day of court, I walked into the courtroom and I had my a 38 hammerless pistol and I stuck it in my belt. Uh, we argued to the jury. Uh, that was, it was like a three day trial. We argued to the jury. Uh, the judge sent the jury out. Uh, and when they came back, uh, they, they had a question. Well, I had made a request to charge or something like that. But anyway, Judge Bagger was going to recharge them. Uh, and he recharged them, and then they went out. Uh, then he said, was there any objections from the state? Dr. McMahon said, no objections from the state. Mr. Swirling, any objections from the defense? And I jumped up, as I sometimes do, even though I was weighing 300-something pounds. 
Uh, and the, as I jumped up, the gun flipped out of my head <laughs> and went up and then crashed on the floor. Uh, and everybody in the courtroom saw it. The court reporter's eyes opened up big. Uh, the deputies opened up. You know, they were like unbelievable. This guy's got a pistol in here. Uh, my client was, uh, you know, he wanted a criminal yeah. lawyer. He got, yeah, he got he a criminal got lawyer. But I, I, Judge Baggett was the only one in the courtroom that had not seen what happened. So I started sliding over to where the gun was. It had kind of gone to the left. And as I'm talking to the judge about my objection to the charge, I'm sliding across. I'm sliding across. And he's looking at me like I'm an idiot. I get in front of Knox McMahon's table. And I bend down and pick up the gun. Uh, and at that point, it was all very fluid. You know? <laughs> Again, Judge Baggett, who I love, and he, thank God he's still around, he's still alive, and he's uh, very spry. Um, he did not know, he still did not know. So I started sliding back to the defense table uh, as I'm talking, and, you know, what do you do with the gun? <laughs> right. And, and, you know, I got a pistol in my hand. Um, and so I put the gun down on the seat next to my client. <laughs> uh, which of course caused there was a deputy over there named Toot, who was a, a big guy, and he just—I mean, he just couldn't it's probably believe not where he wanted I, the gun no, to be. Yeah, he just could not believe it. <laughs> and so at the end, after all, nothing happened, fortunately. Uh, and I'm happy to say Barbara was acquitted. That's because uh, your client was innocent, right? She right. was innocent. Uh, but the deputies all came over to me and they said. Don't ever do that. <laughs> and, and I actually, I did not want Judge Baggett to find out about it uh, from anybody else. So I went into his chambers and I said, can I talk to you? And I was, you know, I was just humiliated. I mean, really, I was still I mean, maybe practicing 15 years, 18 years. And I walked in there and I said, Judge, I got to tell you something. He said, what? And I told him, I had a pistol on me in the courtroom and it dropped out of my belt and when you saw me sliding across the floor both ways, I was going to get the gun. And, and I thought he was just going to chew me up, and he started laughing. <laughs> thank goodness. He did. And, and it, thank goodness, you're right. And, you know, he understood what the situation was with people from West Virginia. But he, what he was amused at was the fact that I had tried so many murder cases, but I felt I had to take a pistol <laughs> into the court to try a murder case. And, uh, I, one part of that story, which I always told, is when I dropped the gun, it looked to me like half the family from West Virginia ran out of the courtroom and finally to go get their gun. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but that, that, anyway, that was one of my great stories, that I, and I still feel the same way today as I did back then. It's a little embarrassing, but it's also a funny story. And thank uh, God it was the 1980s, because there would be an in-ray swirling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ooh, you're not kidding. There, there would be. No, no question yes, about it. Yeah, but, you know, back in those days, I don't even know if it was illegal. Well, it was the Wild West, Yeah, literally. it was the Wild Yeah, I don't know if it was even illegal to have a pistol on you if you had a CWP in the courtroom. But today it is. Yeah. Right. yeah you, can't, you can't have a pistol. So everybody listening, don't try that now. <laughs> yeah, which, no, that no I, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Make sure that uh, everybody understands this was over 30 years ago. <laughs> so uh, I don't want any, not want any problems. The other, uh, this is something that happens to lawyers, and it happened to me. I was going up to fourth circuit to argue my first case ever uh i got a haircut i bought a suit uh worked very hard getting prepared i stayed at the hotel where all the judges stayed in, in richmond uh you know i did everything right, right except i flew up on piedmont airlines 
Uh, and when I got to Richmond, there was no luck. Uh, Piedmont was the forerunner, I guess, of Eastern, and, uh, Continental, whatever it was. But anyway, uh, so I got up there, and in the morning I checked. They said my luggage would be there in the morning, and uh, it still was not there. And I was wearing blue jeans. I had motorcycle boots on and a leather jacket, I mean, a bomber jacket. Uh, and it was not there in the morning either. Now, I'm panicking enough because it's my first argument ever in the Fourth Circuit. And so I go over to the courthouse and I told the, the clerk that I was there to sign in. He had to sign in. And I said to, I think when I walked in, all the marshals looked at me like I was a defendant rather than, you know, the lawyer because right. that's the way I was dressed. But I walked in the clerk's office. I said, I've got to go downtown and buy a sport jacket or a suit because my luggage never got here. And she said, Mr. Swirling, unfortunately, you're the first argument. <laughs> and this was like at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I said, you got to be kidding me. Can't you change it? And she said, no, we don't do that. So I had to go up to the courtroom, uh, and I had to sit there. And Dave Slattery, who is passed now, was the U.S. attorney who went up there with me to, to argue the case. And we walked in, and I sat down at the defense table. And again, everybody started thinking I was a defendant. Uh, and I had to tell him, no, I'm the lawyer. I'm the lawyer. <laughs> and uh, when, you, you know, you get this bang on the on the, on the 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 bench, hear ye, hear ye, the Court of Appeals for the Four Circuit is now in session. And, you know, I, you stand up, and in walks Sam Irvin Jr., who was Sam Irvin, who the senator's son, who was at that time, he was the chief judge of that panel. Uh, and there were two other judges I don't remember, but everybody knew Sam Irvin in those days from the Watergate hearings. Uh, and they called the case, and uh, I was the appellant. And I stood up, just my gut was in my stomach, uh, you know, way down there. Uh, it was just, I was panicking. And as I stood up, I said, uh, my name is Jack Swirling. I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. And Judge Irvin looked at me and said, you must have flown up here on Piedmont Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Judge, that's exactly right. He said, well, you've learned a lesson today that all of us judges have always, we've learned a long time ago. Don't ever check your luggage with Piedmont <laughs> Airlines. And he said, go ahead and uh, make your argument. And, you know, he took all the fear out of me, all the nervousness out of me That's when he did great. that. He Got joked about it. Kinda, yeah, I you didn't bring the gut that day. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been And, and I, I argued the case. I, I didn't win. Uh, that's for sure. But in the Fourth Circuit, they do it like our Court of Appeals. They come down and shake your hands as uh, they're leaving the courtroom. And uh, he, he came over to the table and just shook my hand. He said, thanks for getting through that. Uh, you know, you did a good job. I mean, he really was a right. great country lawyer himself, like his daddy was. And uh, years later, I ran, argued another case in front of him, and he came down. He said, you probably think I forgot about the fact. <laughs> First time I ever saw you, you were wearing blue jeans and a bomber jacket. I said, I was hoping you would judge. <laughs> But anyway, he was the kind of person you could do that with, and he made light of it. And obviously, uh, I didn't give up the practice of law. Uh, <laughs> had somebody else done it, maybe I had, would have. But the, you know, this everybody has some great stories. Uh, just one other short one: I trying a murder case in Richland County, and I broke my zipper on my pants. Uh, <laughs> and I said to uh, Judge Moss, who had been on the Supreme Court, was now trying cases. Uh, I went up to him. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. I said, Judge, I busted the zipper on my pants. Uh, can we just come back tomorrow? 
And he said, nah, I want to finish this trial. <laughs> I got my, my, my zippers wide open. No, nah, don't worry about it. I said, well, how about if I go down to Lurie's? Because I was, you know, practicing with Senator Lurie. And let me get them to, you know, sew up my zipper. He said, nah. He said, I want to finish this case. And uh, he said, nobody can be looking at your crotch anyway. <laughs> so I had to argue my case, uh, my murder case, with a uh, zipper wide open. And I knew everybody was looking at it. <laughs> right. I knew they were. But, but anyway, those kind of things happen, and you learn from them. You Today you can laugh about them um, and share war stories with other lawyers. Well. Jack, we really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. It truly is an honor for us. Um, you can uh, find more about Jack at jackswirling.com. Um, you can follow us on social media at SC Law Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Follow me at Joseph P. Bias. Follow Dane at SC Crim Lawyer and Amber at Red Judicata. Before we go, you dropped the Clemson thing a few times. I have to ask, what was what's more exciting? Clemson winning a national championship. Or you winning a big verdict in the case? Uh, that's a, that's a, that's tough. Uh, I, winning a big verdict. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Uh, one's personal, one's not. And, and right. I, I'd have to say it because he's a, like a brother to me. Joe McCullough's a great lawyer. Okay, we had a great time practicing together. We did the three of us. We had a great time. So for Jack, for Dane, for our. Uh, missing uh, in action. For partner. our Young Lawyer of the Year. Shut up, Dan. Power, power of the hey, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll remember that. <laughs> yeah, very embarrassed. Thank you. Um, but yes, thank you for listening. We will see you next week on the Direct Examination Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.